Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This summer, you need clothes that you can wear anywhere. For that, look to American Giant t-shirts, shorts, jeans, and sweatshirts. American Giant makes everything in the USA. So when you buy, you create jobs and improve local communities all across the country. Shop summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like weeds, frowning, and ketchup. Mm. I love that idea. And you know what? I have no rhymes for us today. That's extraordinary (laughs) and ordinary and... I can't think of anything more. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of birds is in fact all about the Battle of Waterloo and plumed helmets. It's about costume feathers, hats, the American Ornithologist's Union and Cruelty to Birds. It's also all about canary resuscitators, John Scott Halden and the use of canaries down mines and in the trenches during World War I. Who knew? Or that the history of leaving home is in fact all about 17th century boys attending school and university. It's about going off to war and travelling around the world. It's also all about the fascinating history of Viking invasions. Mmm, very good stuff. I enjoyed doing those ones, actually. Thinking oh. back to them. I like this part of the show. We think about what we've, all, what we've been doing and it's also what we're going to do in the future. It? it is. Like history, James. Uh, you're probably wondering who is doing all this talking. Let me just tell you that if history was a snail, this man would be the best, the neatest, the most systematic, careful and analytical snail collector or conchologist in history. None other than the 1681 Jesuit priest Filippo Bonani, <laughs> who published the two-volume atlas Recreazione dell'Occhio e della Mente nell'Osservazione della Ciocchioli. There we go. Uh, which is the first treatise devoted entirely to mollusk shells. And uh, that would be uh, none other than Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. I love that idea. I'll take that as a as a sign. I'll take that positively, I think. Um, um, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still social distancing, still, and it's almost April. Um, well, let's just say that if he were a snail-related historian, well, he'd in fact be the polar opposite of a snail in historical terms. So fast is his historical mind, so sharp is his analytical ingenuity, so unslimy is his historical thinking. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine. It's the famous historical adventurer from a 
across town, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Thank you, James. We, are doing... had the, we had the loveliest email this week that I'd just like to, just like to say thank you okay. um, to the person who wrote. I won't name drop them, but you know who you are. This is a teacher who's teaching in an international school in Kazakhstan. And inspired by our lockdown family oral history project, he got his 11-year students doing some really interesting work, going out and interviewing uh, their their grandparents and sent through some of the work that they've been doing and it was so brilliant to see this so good to see that people have picked up on the ideas of the podcast so thank you very much and you know and good luck yeah good luck we're hugely inspired by your work um it works both ways thank you so much absolutely for getting in touch and telling us uh today we are doing snails um, this was one of James's, um, I think you, you wrote it down as one of your introduction things. We could do the history of snails. And I thought, well, why not? Let's do the history of snails. Uh, because I was uh, reading, I've got a new favourite author, James. Mm. Um, uh, Anthony Doerr, Doer, D-O-E-R-R. Um, and he's written a tremendous book. And there were lots of snails in that book, um, which got me thinking, hmm, because the book's about the Second World War and um, yeah. snaily stuff in, in World War Two. Um, so I thought, oh, we, 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 let's let's definitely do snails. So with this subject, how do we go about it? How might you think about it in general? Um, I think you know, off the top of our head, James. Obviously, it's 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 something that you know you can link to the history of science very easily. Um, we've done this several times, haven't we, with animals, um, whether it's sharks or worms, whatever it might be. The point is, if you want to do the history of something, you can think about how our scientific understanding of uh, of an animal has changed over time. I was very interested in snail collecting, um, the huge variety of them and how that fits in with the history of evolution. Um, I, I also wondered about whether people uh, kind of harvested snails for something. I don't know, didn't know the answer to that. No, I actually couldn't find an answer for that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were used for glue or ink or something like that. I don't know if you came across anything like that. I ca- they were used for food and that was what le- oh. sent me off. In various directions, eating snails, also snails in handbags and eccentricity. <laughs> That's cool. I'm going to talk about that. I found a brilliant article all about the novelist Patricia Highsmith, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley uh, novelist. And Patricia Highsmith was obsessed with snails. I'm going to talk about that. She used to sort of carry them around with her. Uh, so I'm I'm going to sort of... Uh, illuminate you about that. So a brilliant piece uh, by somebody called Fiona Peters at Bath Spa University who wrote a piece called Uncanny Snails, Patricia Highsmith and the Allure of the Gastropods. Ooh, let's um, look forward to so that. So that's very good. And also, yeah, snails, snails as food, which we can trace back to the Roman world, but also we can trace back many, many years before, many centuries, centuries before, uh, to Africa. Um, and also we can trace to times of famine and plague. And there are, there are sort of, you know, a, a, a food that is associated um, with times of crisis. So they were they were eaten when people had nothing else to eat. So that's where... <laughs> like that's like where people eating their shoes. <laughs> like people, people eating, the, people eating, eating their like shoes. Like people eating tulips and things. So it's famine food. Wow. You know, when you've got nothing else to to eat, you know, you will eat almost anything. 
I'm going to start with an excellent little story. Uh, this this isn't really a full contribution. I just came across it and it's brilliant uh, because it it links snails with with history and historians in 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 sort of two ways. So I'm going back to 1846 in the British Museum itself, um, and the the curators of snailiness, uh, whatever they were doing, you know, they came across a snail which had. Um, it had come to the British Museum from the Egyptian desert where it had been collected in 1846 by a person called Charles Lamb. Um, and it was a specimen he described as Helix Desertorum. So it's come all the way from Egypt. It dies. They glue it to a to like a board, a display board. And five years later, it woke up. <laughs> I love that. Um, they fed it cabbage leaves. Um, and then uh, it was awake for a couple of years. And then it fell into another tor- sort of torpor it's described as it's a bit like um hibernation of some kind of description if you know about snails do please get in touch with me but um, it then went back to sleep for another two years and they reckon this thing fell asleep they reckon the last time it was awake was in the egyptian desert and then it wakes up and it wakes up on, on glued to a board in the british museum in 1846 uh, which i i loved that as a, as a little snaily history story to start us off with ah ex- excellent well i'll tell you what i'm gonna start with um I was gonna, I'm going to do it in reverse. I was going to talk about snail eating, but actually, uh, I'm I'm much more interested in in Patricia Highsmith, um, who's a fascinating author. Um, she died uh, in 1995. She's an American novelist, short story writer. Um, she wrote all sorts of thrillers. She invented the character Tom Ripley, um, and she's somebody who t- turns out she's obsessed with snails. And snails have a very interesting personal history for her. And I think it sort of wrapped up with her, a lot of her eccentricities and phobias and the way that she felt about people. But it's also a motif, a theme that runs through a lot of her writing. Now, in terms of in terms of her own personal interest in snails, she seems to have been quite a sort of peculiar character um, and has befriended um snails so there there's an occasion where she actually took them to a she turns up at a at a sort of glittery cocktail party uh with snails in her handbag and takes them out and also she preferred snails to people and there are anecdotes about her actually when she lived in Europe and travelled between Europe and the UK uh she would take large African snails secreted under her bra through customs so that she could move them from one country to the other. And there's a quote here. Um, After staying with her at her house in Suffolk, I met her the following week at a cocktail party in London, says Peter Thompson. She walked in with this gigantic handbag, which she then opened up with pride and which contained a hundred snails and an enormous head of lettuce. She absolutely adored the snails. They were her companions for the evening. And I think it goes on sort of saying about how actually she preferred um, she preferred snails to people and, and at dinner and at parties like this would prefer to be by herself with the snails. And actually, if she went along to a situation where she either felt socially awkward or she disliked the people that were inviting her, she would literally get the snails out and allow them to sort of run backwards and forwards, well, not run backwards and forwards, but sort of smear all their slime all over their furniture and, 
and the table uh, as a sort of, I suppose, as a sort of an affront to them. And this, this piece continues. Her editor at Doubleday, Larry Ashmead, recalls that when Highsmith moved to France in 1967, she told him that she smuggled her pets into the country under her breasts. You couldn't take live snails into France, so she was sneaking them in under her breasts, he says, and that wasn't just on one trip. No, she kept going back and forth. She said that she would take six to ten of the creatures under each breast every time she went, and she wasn't joking. She was very serious. Now, moving on from this sort of personal connection to snails, her obsession with snails, they also seep into her novels and her short stories. And they crop up in one early novel published in 1957 called Deep Water. And this novel has a hero called Victor Van Allen. And he's a sort of an, an outsider um, living in upstate New York who's very, who's sort of alienated from his, his wife. And he doesn't find any sort of comfort in that relationship. Uh, and instead, he befriends two pet snails called Hortense and Edgar. And he views them uh, making love. Hortense and Edgar, and I'm quoting here from the book, were making love. Edgar reaching down from a little rock to kiss Hortense on the mouth. Hortense was rearing on the end of her foot, swaying a little under his caress like a slow dancer enchanted by music. Vic, so this is our protagonist, watched for five, perhaps five minutes, thinking of absolutely nothing, not even the snails, until he saw the cup-shaped excrescences start to appear on the right side of both snails' heads. How they did adore each other, and how perfect they were together. The glutinous cups grew larger and touched rim to rim, their mouths drew apart. And snail activity crops up in other short stories. There's one published in 1970, which is called The Snail Watcher. And there's also one in, another one in 1970 called The Quest for blank claveringi. Um, and here we see snails not in a in a sort of um a way as as friends, but in sort of very malign ways, um, which I'll come along and talk about uh in a little bit. Um the the article that I've been reading uh here um is a great article. Uh so it's called Uncanny Snails, Patricia Highsmith and the Allure of the Gastropods by Fiona Peters. Um and it goes on to sort of trace the the sort of history of snails in literature through sort of the medieval gothic snails and this and knights battling uh, giant snails. It then looks at the way in which you know snails crop up into into literary theory. So it does some stuff on Lacan and Zizak and, and Julia Kristeva. Um, it looks at sort of the use of, of snails in French in French cuisine and then goes through a really detailed uh, exploration of these uh, of the snails in these in these books. Um, we've talked already about deep water, but what I'd like to talk about now is the 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 short stories and start with the snail watcher. So here we have uh, another another 
sort of male figure, a man called Peter Knoppert, who's a partner in a in a brokerage firm. And again, he's somebody who's who's in a sort of a, a failing marriage. And what he does is instead he turns to snails. And remember what I said here, that actually the snails are quite um are quite sort of malign forces. And what he does is he comes home from for, from work one day and finds these snails uh, on the in a in a in a bowl on the working surface in the kitchen, you know, being sort of prepared for dinner. And he 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 doesn't like the idea of this. And so what he does is he he basically rescues these snails and he takes them into his study um, and preserves them and what happens is again he he becomes sort of transfixed by these mating snails and you know rather like the the other novel that we were talking about but what happens is these snails keep breeding and they're in his they're in his study and they grow into their thousands uh so much so that they just take over his his whole you know his whole world um and they also are part of his demise and they're they're absolutely everywhere he's trapped in his room behind all of these sort of snails tries to get out of the window they've sort of glued the window up they're behind the wallpaper the wallpaper sort of falls upon him and there's a, a passage where it, it it talks about his sort of his his sort of demise a snail crawled into his mouth he spat it out in disgust then through the slit of an eye, he saw directly in front of him, only inches away, what had been, he knew, the rubber plant that stood in its pot near the door. A pair of snails were quietly making love in it, and right beside them, tiny snails as pure as dewdrops were emerging from a pit like an infinite, infinite army into their widening world and so what happens is the encrusted wallpaper peels off it hits him on the head followed by a chandelier and he dies there with snails sort of you know crawling into his mouth and 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 ultimately you know ultimately killing him the final short story that we have is the quest for blank claveringi uh, and this is basically about a protagonist who goes out trying to chase down a giant snail. And what happens here is the man chasing, hunting down the snail is killed by the snail and he travels to an island to find it and he finds one gigantic snail and then, and quote, a gigantic face regarded him, a face with drooping scallop cheeks or lips with antennae six feet long now, the eyes on ends of them scrutinising at his own level. If the shell was 15 or 18 feet in diameter, he reckoned that the snail's body or foot would be something like six yards when extended. And what happens is he tries to sort of go into the sea uh, to escape it, and the, the, the snail follows him. Our hero, I quote, kills the male, but in but is overcome by the female who leaves his corpse disdainfully for her little ones to devour this he realizes as he is being eaten alive so there we are the sort of the peculiar world of patricia highsmith this obsession with snails and then the way in which this obsession with snails and human relationships seeps into 
her literary output. How about that, Sam? I wasn't expecting to find <laughs> snails in novelists' handbags when no. you suggested this. It was fantastic. Well done. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I, was, I was really super. I'm going to have to listen to it again to actually work out how how we went from being uh, dying and having a snail in your mouth and fighting giant snails to having snails uh, under your breasts and in your handbags. But we somehow managed to do so. Yes. And I'm delighted about that. Um, hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you know what I mean? The, the there are so many different ways you can think about snails, actually. But the um, I I went to the literary world as well because I wanted to talk about this book, this book by Anthony Doer, um, called All the Light We Cannot See. It's about a blind French girl, um, uh, who who's brought up in Paris. She uh, her father works in the Museum of Natural History, and her 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 life kind of gets intertwined with a a German scientific genius who's brilliant at making radios uh, and it ends up with um the the blind french girl her her uh, uncle i think it was her great uncle um operates a radio for the resistance and this german boy werner um who is the scientific genius to, is sent out to track down um illegal radio signals anyway their paths cross um fascinating here because of the theme of snails which repeatedly appears in this book i really would urge you all to read it it's one of the most extraordinary books i've ever read um and this wonderful moment particularly at the beginning because she's at the museum of natural history where her father works she she comes across snails for the first time she collects them and she actually goes on later in life towards the end of the book to become a, a noted science scientist of mollusks um it's quite interesting why these snails come up. And one way of reading it is, is yes, she, she admires these snails for their beauty. Um, but also she constantly talks about their ability to withstand the beaks of seagulls, their ability to remain securely attached to rocks and stones. There's a wonderful bit where when she moves from Paris to saint Malo just before the it's firebombed by the Allies and she is taken by a veteran of the First World War, down to a little grotto. 
which is covered in snails. And she spends a great deal of time there uh, collecting them. And because she's blind, she, she has to only use her touch to identify the snails. Uh, nonetheless, this, this, this theme regularly comes back of um, snails and their ability to withstand chaos. Um, it's also, I think, with uh, peace and stability. It's why they feature so regularly in the book. I just wanted to, to read you a little bit uh, from the beginning, because this is from when she's in the Natural History Museum. And she comes across snails for the first time. And it made me want to be a snail collector, having not even considered snail collecting. I can't believe I've never considered it in my entire life, but apparently I did. On the back wall of Dr Geffard's lab are cabinets that contain more drawers than she can count. And he lets her open them one after another and hold seashells in her hands. Welks, olives, imperial volutes from Thailand, spider conches from Polynesia. The museum possesses more than 10,000 specimens, over half the known species in the world. And Mary Law gets to handle most of them. Now that shell, Laurette, belonged to a violet sea snail, a blind snail, that lives its whole life on the surface of the sea. As soon as it is released into the ocean, it agitates the water to make bubbles and binds those bubbles with mucus and builds a raft. Then it blows around, feeding on whatever floating aquatic invertebrates it encounters. But if it ever loses its raft, it will sink and die. A carinaria shell is simultaneously light and heavy, hard and soft, smooth and rough. The murex Dr Geffard keeps on his desk can entertain her for half an hour. The, follow, the hollow spines, the ridged whirls, the deep entrance. It's a forest of spikes and caves and textures. It's a kingdom. Her hands move ceaselessly, gathering, probing and testing. So there you are. It's a uh, it's it's imaginary, but it's it's crucially important uh, because of of the uh, it's sort of opening a window to to collecting snails and also the clever use by Mr. Anthony Dewar of of shells. Um, I believe as a symbol of resistance during the Second World War. Oh, love it, Sam! It's absolutely brilliant. So I'm riffing now on your question earlier on about whether people collected sh- snails for any sort of practical purpose whether they had any sort of any uses and i think there are all sorts of uses for them i think there's a lot of evidence firstly about people eating snails um and, and in fact if you've never eaten snails snails are absolutely delicious prepared in a in a sort of very french french way with garlic and butter um they're 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 absolutely delicious and you have to prepare them by um by popping them in a sort of thing of lettuce uh, or and get them to eat carrots for a while so that they purge all the sort of toxins out of their body uh but then they are a, a culinary delicacy and we can trace that all the way back to to i think it's africa um about um you know 32,000 to 26,000 uh, years ago um so there's a into um yes i'm reading here uh in the sort of the mediterranean coast of north africa france italy and greece um we can also see it in uh in in the roman world and if you have a look at the sort of archaeological remains there's a lot that that survives there i think if we think about our our tudor book uh where we looked at accidents i think one of the things that um that came out of that was snail slime being used as a lubricant uh, for wheel axles. So they have they have properties there. I think there's also 
Um, there are also uh, medicinal properties uh, there. And if we go back to our, our classical writers, uh, Fulvius Lippinus, uh, and, um, and we have a look at the, the work there, and also Pliny the Elder in his Natural History, you can see um, various sort of parts of the snails being being ground up uh, and used in various ways. And there's in, in Pliny the Elder's Natural History in chapter 59, which is about vipers and snails, this is quite illuminating. You'll love this, Sam. It is said that the viper is the only one among the serpents that conceals itself in the earth, the others lurking either in the hollow of trees or in holes in the rocks. Provided they are not destroyed by cold, they can live there without taking food for a whole year. During the time that they are asleep in their retreat, none of them are ven venomous. A similar state of torpor exists also in snails. These animals again become dormant during the summer, adhering very powerfully to stones. And even when turned up and pulled away from the stones, they will not leave their shells. In the Balearic Isles, the snails, which are known as the cave snail, do not leave their holes in the ground, nor do they feed upon any green thing but adhere to each other like so many grapes. There is another less common species also, which is closed by an persulum that adheres to the shell. These animals always burrow under the earth and were formerly never found except in the environs of the maritime Alps. They have, however, of late been dug up in the territory of Laternum. The most valued, however, are those of the island of Astiplea. Um, and he goes on to sort of talk about the he goes on to talk about the uses of them, so having done this sort of study of where they are. Um, and he says here, um, if either testicle hangs down, we are told that a remedy is found in applying the slime of snails. Foul and running ulcers on these parts are relieved by the fresh ashes of a dog's head, by the small, broad kind of snail beaten up in vinegar by the slough of a snake or its ash in vinegar by honey in which bees have died mixed with resin by the shellless kind of snail which i have said breeds in africa beaten up with the powdered powdered frankincense and white of eggs the application is removed on the 13th day and some add a bulb instead of frankincense and so you can see um uh, snails being very uh, useful for medicinal purposes there. I think also that while they're eaten throughout throughout history, as I was saying earlier on, they are also a form of famine food. So they're one of those things that you that people turn to in absolute desperation. Um, and I've got an, an extract here uh, from Robert Chambers. 1858 domestic annals of Scotland from the Reformation to the Revolution and it describes it tells a story of two girls Bessie Bell and Mary Gray in the year of uh, 1645 and um, and here it's basically saying that during a period of um, you know of, of great sort of um, you know famine for them um, they are you know, they turn to eating snails. In the town of Dundee, there exists a strange traditional story of the plague connected with the conversion from dire necessity of the 
Arionatum or black slug, which is also also it's sort of it, it's also snails as well, to a use similar to that which the luxurious Romans are said to have made of the great apple snail. Two young and blooming maidens lived together at that dread time, like Bessie Bell and Mary Grey, in a remote cottage on the steep, indeed almost perpendicular ascent of Bonnetmaker's Hill. Deprived of fens or support by the pestilence that walked at noonday, they still retained their good looks and healthful aspect, even when the famine had succeeded to the plague. The jaundiced eyes of the famine-wasted wretches around them were instantly turned towards the poor girls, who appeared to thrive so well whilst others were famishing. They were unhesitatingly accused of witchcraft, and had nearly fallen a prey to that terrible charge, for betwixt themselves they had sworn never to tell in words by what means they were supported, ashamed as they felt of the resource to which they had been driven, and resolved, if possible, to escape the anticipated derision of their neighbours on its disclosure. It was only when about to be dragged before their stern inquisitors that one of the girls, drawing aside the covering of a great barrel which stood in a corner of their domicile, discovered, without violating her oath, that the youthful pair had been driven to the desperate necessity of collecting and preserving for food large quantities of these. And then it's a Latin word, limacino, uh, which, is, uh, which means snails, uh, which they ultimately acknowledge to approve to them generous and even agreeable sustenance. So this actually is from, is from uh, the year of 1665, 1666, when the plague was ravishing in London and these girls um, were eating uh, these things in a manner that these two girls, Bessie Bell and Mary Grey, did in a, in a story from 1645. So there we are, snails as famine food, Sam. <laughs> I, lo- I love this idea of famine food. I think it's brilliant. Let me just end with uh, something from uh, Emmanuel Mendes de Costa, who you will all know very well. I am sure he's an English botanist and naturalist. He's a philosopher. He becomes very famous for embezzling funds whilst working at the Royal Society and was imprisoned. Uh, and otherwise, he's uh, well known because he's one of the first Jewish fellows of the Royal Society of London. This guy writes uh, a wonderful book called The Elements of Conchology or Conchology, I think. Conchology. Conchology? Conchology. The Elements of Conchology or An Introduction to the Knowledge of Shell. And uh, his first paragraph should inspire you all to go and come snail experts. The study of shells or testaceous animals is a branch of natural history, though not greatly useful in human economy, yet perhaps by the infinite beauties of the subjects it treats of, is adapted to recreate the senses and insensibly to lead the amazed admirer into the contemplation of the glory of the divinity in their creation. As a wonderful way of starting a little book, I think. So that is a, it's a fab book to read. Um, the Elements of Conchology are from 1776. And I'd urge you all to try and find that online. That's it for now. That's our wonderful um, entertainment on the history of snails, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. If you want to find out what we're up to, do please follow us all on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis on Twitter. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out my podcast, The Mariner's Mirror Podcast. 
And I am James Daybell in real life, and on Twitter I am <laughs> at James Daybell, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also smeared all over social media. We are on Instagram, so you can follow us there. We are also on Facebook, so get in touch. And people have been people have been getting in touch on those diverse platforms, which has been great. So we've had lots of interaction with you folks um, who are listening to this and seem to be um, liking it, uh, which is good to hear. We also have a website where you can find out everything that we have been up to, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. I wonder why we thought of that URL, Sam. <laughs> I don't know. That's it for now, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Take care. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.